It's interesting because technically we're still in the writing process, though I guess when people are listening to this, it will have come out already. So there's still some polish that needs to be applied to it. So let's maybe talk about it elliptically and uh, maybe in the sort of in-process sort of way. Because I think that the, the broader topic is one that, you know, we've riffed, we've riffed on in various ways. It's not like it's just tied to the Friday essay. It gets to like a fundamental question that I think will, will be of interest to all of our listeners. Right? I, guess, I guess the subject is American exceptionalism in a weird way, right? Yeah. It's, it's the, the, the real challenge of it is, at least to me as I was writing the essay, let's say it's about American exceptionalism. I guess I guess what's behind the essay is this kind of realization that's been sort of slowly dawning on me. And I think maybe the way to put it is that if you had asked me before 2008 and said, uh, there's a really big financial crisis coming and uh, it's really going to shake things up both in the United States and Europe, I would have said, well, good Lord, uh, the U.S. is really screwed. Uh, I really, you know, wish my life wasn't tied to here because, you know, Europe's got the social safety net and it's, you know, an advanced social democracy. And, you know, once like a huge crisis, like one that with echoes of, of the Great Depression hits, you know, I, I, I sure would prefer to, to be in a place where, you know, my, my sort of livelihood and security and, you know, that what the social safety net is for, that it's all there to, to sort of take the edge off it. And then 2008 happened and the U.S. recovered in a few years uh, and the European Union uh, to just, you know, not even talk about Europe, but talk specifically about the European Union and the, the market there. It, it took a full three years for unemployment to get to the level of pre-crisis uh, unemployment was higher and is persistently higher in Europe than uh, than the United States. And and youth unemployment never really recovered to the levels before COVID hit again. And then if you had asked me, you know, even as, as COVID was sort of taking its toll, uh, if you had asked me even last year, you know, I mean, you know, you and I, as you said, have been going back and forth about this, about, you know, the, the relative things. And we have been uh, I think reasonably bullish on 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 America, but I I still think last year I would have been surprised by how things are looking right now. You know, if you had like taken me back, I th- I I had felt like there are sort of inborn advantages to the United to the United States, but but uh, um, you know that 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 it wouldn't quite play out this way, and I, I think it's still too early to tell how it's going to play out. But um, the United States is doing super well. And I guess the the sort of thing that that struck me that that like impelled me to to write this Friday essay is this is this idea that like I've never considered myself like a Reaganite or uh, like a no. Randian <laughs> like libertarian type person and you know I you know I, I've done my fair enough reading of uh, uh, what's his name uh, Road to Serfdom Man and and all these philosophy types who are, who are basically you know talk about emergent order and the the, the the real virtues of this sort of stuff, uh, Hayek, of course. Sorry, I literally couldn't think of his name right there. <laughs> but it's it's um, I, I've never I've never really felt it. I guess is what it comes down to. Like I, I understood it intellectually, but I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The world's a lot more complicated than these sort of models, and I understand the virtues of of this kind of openness and, and market oriented sort of stuff. But I I, I guess I, I I wouldn't have believed it. And and now looking back, I I think I would have said. I'd, been, I'd have been surprised uh, to be told that the United States recovered from the financial crisis so well. And looking ahead right now, I think there's something 
that will impel the United States to even recover from this latest crisis and really outstrip most other advanced Western democracies in in the recovery here. I don't think it's an unalloyed good. And I, I guess I'm sort of trying to grapple with that in the essay, like what that is and, and, and how to sort of like put your finger on it in what is basically a thousand words. You can't really get Wait, into are, too are much Are you detail. saying that Hayek was right or that he was wrong or that he was both? Well, I'm saying that that having read Hayek in the past, I would have said something along the lines of like, it might be right in theory, but you know, in practice, it's a lot more complicated. There are many more variables. And I guess I'm struck now in practice that at least something of that is proving to be more obviously true than I would yeah, have given it yeah. credit before. Y- yeah. At the same time, though, it's interesting that one of the reasons that we're recovering from the COVID recession and the you know past economic crises more quickly is because we're willing to put in a lot of stimulus into our economy. The Fed is doing quantitative easing. It's providing a backstop, so on and so forth. All of that means that there's loose money, which goes very much against, I think, the... Um, let's say, the classical Republican or even libertarian viewpoint, um, the state is getting more involved in the economy, but obviously not in the same way as Europe. I mean, we just saw Biden with the $1.9 trillion stimulus, and there has been a lot of talk about how Biden is bringing forth the end of neoliberalism, that he's actually governing somewhat, I don't know if radically is the right word, but certainly when it comes to... um, deficit spending, stimulus, and coming up with bold, ambitious plans that cost a lot of money, that's really at the heart of why we've been, and you do talk about this in your piece, that where Europe responded to crises with austerity, and I think that people will have to look back at the austerity craze with the whole, um, I forget what, maybe there was some like catchphrase for it, Greece leaving the EU and all the pressure that was put on them and the days when that was the number one political story. and But the pressure was specifically about um, imposing austerity on a Greek socialist-led government, which was very controversial within Greece and, and provoked a lot of anti-EU sentiment. But it also just, and understandably so, there's the kind of sovereignty aspect, but also austerity doesn't work. Yeah, I mean... The challenge, the challenge there in everything you've uncorked there, and even the challenge for me in writing on this sort of stuff is that I'm not an economist. And it's, these are, these are really, uh, hairy, hairy issues that nevertheless are endlessly fascinating. And it, it's, it's just that, you know, trying to write something brief on something like this when one in fact is not an economist and still, you know, so try and hedge yourself appropriately, gesture at, you know, something that seems to be uh, like an interesting correlation, not necessarily implying causation to it and and still say something is really hard. On the, on the Europe stuff, um, and even on this question of uh, loose monetary policy, I really would uh, recommend both to you, Shadi, but certainly to our readers. There's a, a couple of days ago, Adam Tews wrote uh, another, just sort of like one of the, one of his periodic barn burners. I mean, I, 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 I I very grudgingly, very grudgingly subscri- uh, subscribe to uh, Foreign Policy magazine and its 
98% because of Adam Tooze's essays, which are just so spectacular. The, 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 the point is, is that, um, it's a, it's a profile of, uh, Janet Yellen and Mario Draghi and talks about, you know, their sort of career arcs, the arc of, uh, basically, you know, neoliberal, um, or just general, well, they're not sort of Chicago school neoliberals. They're, you know, like Keynesian managed economy. And basically, I think paints a really good picture about, you know, how how the lines here are much more blurred than people appreciate. And basically where the current moment puts us on this for both of them, both for the EU and the United States. Um, one thing that, that he threw out there and just sort of highlighted for me how much I'm not an economist um, and how much I wasn't paying attention is that actually Janet Yellen raised interest rates and and, and really pulled back right ahead of Trump's election. Uh, I mean, I vaguely remember Trump railing and ranting against, you know, uh, the Fed. And I, I believe he, he he had some, you know, pretty thinly veiled anti-Semitic uh, jibe against her and Lord, Lloyd Blankfein and I forget someone else uh, at the time. But it's interesting that, you know, that there was actually a pullback ahead of Trump and that, you know, in in 2015, Tews sort of argues that, in fact, manufacturing and a lot of these other sectors were hit pretty hard, sort of paving the way for Trump and that that Bernie himself was ranting and, and raving against Yellen at the time. So, you know, it's 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 a it's a really complicated picture. Yeah. It takes someone like Adam Tews to properly paint it out. And in fact, now, as I, I look at the draft of my essay, I probably want to uh, rework that paragraph about uh, labor markets a little bit, or at least to you know make it a little bit more uh, supple. Um, but but, hmm. but I think the fundal, the fundamental insight that I think you're getting at here goes is not really the province of economics or economic theory. It's it's a broader question of w- what kind of trade offs a society is willing to accept. So you know I think that. The flexibility of the American economic system, the fact that we are relatively more free market oriented than our European counterparts, obviously that has a cost, a human cost uh, on healthcare, for example. But when you look at a lot of these issue areas, um, the reason that the U.S. can produce the best drugs and have the best pharmaceutical interventions and the most advanced medical medical equipment, so on and so forth, from a research and production standpoint, is is probably somewhat tied. You, I mean, you can't kind of imagine a system where um, the system where America is perfect, so it's able to do all of this research and development, but also has the best welfare system and the best healthcare system for all citizens that you have this kind of minimal, uh, a a sort of minimal healthcare standard that all Americans can access. It's hard to, uh, that doesn't exist in the real world. And it probably doesn't exist in the real world because life is about trade-offs and policy is about trade-offs. So if you have, if, if some aspect of your healthcare policy is incredible it's likely that there's another aspect of your healthcare policy that's terrible. Mm. And I think that's basically what you're pointing towards here. Um, So the reason that we can do so well on vaccines a year into the COVID pandemic probably has something to do with the fact that we did so badly at the very beginning. Again, is it, can we really imagine a scenario where there's this mythical country that does amazing in the first period and also amazing in the vaccine rollout period, that, again, that that is an ideal type. 
but it doesn't exist so often or it hasn't existed. I don't think there are obvious examples of that thus far. I mean, the most successful vaccine rollout countries didn't do good in the early phase of COVID. The UK, uh, Israel to some extent, and, um, and I believe Chile. Um, so, you know, th- there's something there um, that we have to accept if we want to hold on to the best parts of the American success story then we may have to accept some of the worst parts. The danger with that, of course, and I'd be curious what you have to say about this, is that leads to a sort of complacency. And that's this. these arguments are often used, maybe not in as direct a way, or they're not acknowledging the philosophical aspects in, you know, in a very explicit way. But Republicans do use talking points to this effect that um, America is great, warts and all, um, and to kind of tinker with the basic formula is to tinker with what the good things that we produce and and the fact that we are still the best in in these very in these various ways in terms of healthcare or educational system and so on um so to what extent do we have to accept a trade-off which ultimately means being complacent about the least fortunate in our society but before that, I'll, I'll just uh, I do want to give readers some context because we kind of we had a nice cold open where what you probably will end up hearing, because I don't know exactly when Demir will start it. But I think you will hear him talking about something without a lot of initial context. You've heard him refer to the Friday essay that he's working on. Um, for those of you who don't know, we recently started something called, as you might suspect, the Friday essay. And it's basically Demir and I alternating essays each week. So pretty much it means that there will be an essay every week. We're really excited about it. It is, we have to acknowledge, for subscribers only. And uh, But it is a feature that we want to offer to to members. That's a kind of special benefit and something that people can look forward to every week and something that we can look forward to every week, that it it sort of orients us each of us every other week to write something new and original. So Demir is up this week with the essay that it's not, as we speak, it's not completely done yet. So what you guys will will see, uh, we don't know quite yet exactly what it will look like, but having seen an earlier draft of it, I can tell you that it is very, very good. And it almost makes me think that we're onto something really special here, that if we're doing these essays every week, that wisdom of crowds can really be, in some sense, your home for really deep, thoughtful, and exploratory essays. And you'll see that what Demir does in the piece, as long as he doesn't change it too much, he really takes a while to get to his point, which I love, because I feel like an editor would look at that and be like, Put your argument up front. There would be pressure to conform to a particular way of writing, which is fine and probably preferable in some instances. But I like it that I don't know exactly where Demir is going, but he's walking me through it. And I end up finding myself at a place I didn't know I was even going to. And I personally like essays like that a lot. Anyways, that's kind of what what um, I guess De- what Demir is up to and what we're up to. Um, if you are interested, um, consider subscribing at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. And that's the marketing pitch out. Um, but Demir, I, I sort of started that with a question about the trade-offs and whether they're worth it and how you would kind of respond to the 
to the charge of potential complacency. Yeah. In a way, the essay is me trying to uh, especially avoid that charge, if that makes sense, um, because I'm very aware of it and I don't like it. I don't, I mean, I, not, not only do I not like that charge, I don't like that as a move taken by proponents of, you know, all all of these, what I would say are positive externalities of what America often, uh, I think, is pilloried for, you know, being deficient at. You know, I, I guess that's the best way to sort of describe what I'm getting at at the essay, is that there are many things that we would like to change about America, but it's important to recognize that some of them have externalities that I myself haven't appreciated. I guess that's the the most succinct way to put it. But there was something else you said, though, Shadi, that, that I think is also on point and is something I haven't resolved. Um, and that is uh, the other danger of setting this up as some kind of binary, which is, you know, uh, either you uh, accept certain features about America or you forego them and you end up in a worse place. Um, and I was actually going back and forth on an unrelated thing on on Twitter uh, with our friend Dove Friedman earlier today. And actually, I didn't send this tweet to you ahead of the the podcast. It's a it's a different one. I, I I said this. I said, would Joe Biden's pandemic response have been more European than Trump's had he been president last year? Less nationalistic, more committed to global distribution over the immediate needs of his own citizens. And do you think America would be better or worse off for it? That was my initial sort of provocation. And then I, I went back and forth with, with Dove a few times. Um, and Dove was sort of taking me to task to saying that that was an unnecessarily provocative way to put it, uh, that in fact, potentially, one could imagine doing both. Uh, that is to say, doing something of the equivalent of Operation Warp Speed, but also getting Congress on side to you know allocate more funds for actually a global pandemic relief thing once the american populace was fully taken care of and the rest of this and you know at least in theory that's true obviously uh there's no reason why you can't say well we're going to ensure that every american citizen gets their dose on you know first and foremost and at the same time we're prepping for uh for a global rollout and yet still i wonder and this is what you know i mean i i was doing this on Twitter just as I was starting to write, and it's sort of also at the germ of, of, of what I'm trying to get at. And that is that, like, I wonder if your priors commit you to a certain kind of set of, call them moral commitments, to improve the world. And if your priors commit you to a belief that and I'm not saying that Biden himself or even those around him really think this, but I think it's somewhere back in there that like maybe the nation state is not fully legitimate. And in fact, we have a responsibility to the world that transcends the responsibility to our citizens. If one, even on the margins, starts thinking that way, I wonder if, you know, one can say that especially, you know, with all this crazy MMT stuff and people are talking about there are no limits to American spending and fine, we can we can you know, whatever we choose to do, it wouldn't it wouldn't break the bank to actually invest a lot of money in doing global distribution and the rest of this. But there is a finite amount of energy within government to be able to accomplish goals. I do think that's the case. And now, again, not if you're Joe Biden, apparently. Well, I mean, we'll see, right? That's the the interesting thing. I, I I'm waiting for for things to start falling down. You you can't do everything. You just simply can't. I mean, you can't do everything well, and you can't do everything. But and again, I, I want to caveat this by saying, of course, that like Trump was incredibly 
incompetent as a manager. And his administration, uh, though having overseen Operation Warp Speed, I, I, you know, I, I struggle with giving credit to an administration which was at the same time so manifestly incompetent. Nevertheless, you know, I mean, this is why it's it's, it's better to rely on you know like Boris Johnson or or or, or Netanyahu as as the other counterexamples of this of you know the the three countries that are doing really well that have prioritized this and largely because of a certain kind of bloody minded prioritization of their leadership at the time to get this done with a you know America Britain Israel first approach to these things. Now maybe I'm overstating that, and Dove was taking me to task for being like unreasonably provocative and overstating that fact. Maybe we can, you know, talk nice while still being selfish enough to ensure that, you know, the rollout really does prioritize America. Uh, and, you know, I mean, listeners might disagree that that's actually morally abhorrent and we shouldn't do that. And we should actually all be in this together because we're all one happy family in the, on the world. I mean, I have a lot of problems with that, but it's a fine standpoint to take. Um, but but I, I I do think that that while one can imagine that we can be better and it's not a binary choice, I do think that there is something there there that that trade off I'm trying to sketch out in the essay is real enough and even if it's not like an on off sort of thing either you you know are more selfish and you know have positive externalities or less selfish and, and fewer positive externalities even if it's a, a scale. It's real, I guess, is what I'm getting at, and and yeah. where one falls on it matters. I guess that's what I, that's my answer. So, on the counterfactual, if Biden was president last year, well, first of all, Democrats would be more comfortable with nationalism if Trump was never elected in the first place. So, in the counterfactual history, we have to account for the fact that Biden wouldn't be coming to power as a response to Donald Trump. So you would have, um, so there would be, I think more, and it seems that Biden is relatively comfortable prioritizing Americans anyway, even after Trump, but perhaps the Democratic Party more broadly would be probably less woke. Um, I could be wrong about that. And just more traditional, more center left, um, less pressures from, the grassroots left base, so on and so forth. So there could have still been a com more a comfort with prioritizing Americans over the rest of the world, um, which is obviously an oversimplification. But even putting that aside, I still I do think it would have been just by virtue of being a Democrat, you have to take into account regulations more. Also, as someone who is a creature of the system, an institutionalist. All of that would have made Biden and the team around him more deferential to regulators. So I think that regardless of the context, we would have seen certain holdups. Uh, maybe it wouldn't have been a huge holdup. Maybe it would have been two months longer or three months. But that still is, you know, thousands or potentially tens of thousands of lives in the mix right there. So I think that Trump does, does do, even if it, I mean, regardless of what Trump's intentions are, I don't think Trump was waking up and thinking, oh, I want to get a vaccine as soon as possible because I love saving the lives of Americans and I value that more than anything else. But I think the outcome, the outcome of Trump's, like as you described it, his bloody, his, his bloody mindedness, the, the idea of, you know, 
America should just get this shit done and forget about the rules and regulations and the norms of how we've done vaccines in the past. Trump doesn't care about any of that. He's not aware of any of that. So he went to people and he said, let's just get this done as soon as possible. I don't want to hear anything about it, you know. So um, I'm, I think that I'm persuaded uh, uh, when it comes of, the, of that case. Um, and I think that the correlation here is unmistakable. Uh, Boris, so as you said, Boris Johnson, BB, Donald Trump, and the fourth. And I had to check it because I don't really know much about Chile. But I was curious. I presumed, based on our sort of budding hypothesis, that the president of Chile would be a right winger. Uh, if they've done so well in the vaccine rollout, and it turns out that the answer is yes, which I mean, is interesting. Right. Um, the, the, the counter, of course, and I think I said this to you privately offline, is, is Bolsonaro, who's you know a raging right winger in the in the mold of Trump, and and Brazil's a, a dire failure, which just points <laughs> to which just points to I think the kind of you know the complexities in all of this. And again, you know, it's important to note that that I'm I'm I'm, I'm I am also in the essay trying to not lay this on the in the, on the solely at the feet of all you need is a bloody-minded leader who is willing to do whatever it takes to you know get things done for his country. Never mind the international community. That's not exactly the argument. The argument is more you know trying to get our, my finger on exactly what you and I have talked about before, which is like what is this sort of special sauce that America has? And I guess the thing that's most provocative to me is that like you know. I mean, you know, the, the the hook for the essay basically is this question of, of resilience, which, you know, in Washington, D.C., it's like you're just barraged with these these catchphrases that just sort of come out. And then, like, we're all just talking in terms of this catchphrase. We've just gotten out of it talking about disinformation. Everything's disinformation. It's just this goddamn word that just everything you talk about sort of gets passed <laughs> through this filter in this town. And and so, you know, I, I don't think resilience is really caught up, caught on in the same way, but it exists in this town. Um, and I, I predict, especially after after COVID and you know the looming climate catastrophe, et cetera, et cetera, that resilience is is going to be one of those things that just sort of dominates discourse here. But it's it's funny because resilience is tied, in my mind anyway, to a lot of this sort of I don't know the same kind of impulse of global comedy and comedy, see, not comedy, comedy, and. Uh, you know this this idea that 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 cooperation global cooperation is the only way to to tackle global problems and and that you know there's a there's a moral imperative for us to come together as human beings in the world to really tackle the big challenges and and i i i guess the thing that's that's sort of i don't know just interesting to me is that how much that may well be false as demonstrated by America. I guess that's the other sort of sub-thesis that I'm sort of wrestling here with this essay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, before I forget, I'll just note that the Chilean president is not just on the right. He's also a billionaire businessman. Mm. So maybe um, that's interesting. Uh, I don't want to read too much into that, but it's just worth noting. And, you know, if Maybe there are people who listen to the podcast who know more about Chile <laughs> and they can tell us what they think about that. If so, feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter and be like, no, you guys are wrong. Um, yeah, I, I literally don't know the first thing about Chile, except, you know, 
uh, but our, one of our jokes. good friends, Ani, um, wait, about Pinochet. Yeah, yeah, that's all I know. Pinochet jokes, that's all I know. Oh, jokes, yeah. Well, it's interesting that this right, this uh, right, I guess he's not super right wing, he's just, he's on the right though, is that he he's apparently, according to Wikipedia. Oh, boy. <laughs> we're going there. Oh, boy. The fir- Okay, look, it says he, he has, he was the first conservative president to be democratically elected since 1958. Mm-hmm. And the first, obviously, since Pinochet. Mm. Anyway, worth noting as a worth little noting. data point. Yeah. I was going to say something else, but... Um, you lost it. That's the problem with asides. Like, you want to get them in because you're like, oh, I'll forget about the aside. And then you forget about the main thing. The main point. Yeah, yeah. that's a dilemma that we're facing. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, I think also... I don't know if this totally coincides with your point, but it's just worth noting because it's something I've focused on more, which is... And we've talked, I think we talked about this on the podcast last year at some point, that one reason that the U.S. is better at integrating immigrants is because of its weaker social welfare system, that because the state is less involved in immigrants' lives, and in some sense, there is more pressure on immigrants to... Um, be very entrepreneurial, really from the from the start. They they enter they enter the U.S. and there there isn't much of a, safe, a social safety net. But more importantly, because there isn't a generous welfare system, there's less welfare. What's sometimes called welfare chauvinism. I don't even know how to pronounce that word in real life. Okay, welfare chauvinism. Chauvinism. Yeah. Chauvinism. <laughs> That there's there's less welfare chauvinism because it's not as if these people you hear this from Republicans, but it's not actually true. You're not actually very angry at people, immigrants for sucking up. I guess people are, but it's just not as true as it is in Europe that the economic aspects are a little bit different. I mean, I probably have to look back at some of the studies on this, but from what I recall, um, you know, um, there have been some academic arguments to this effect, this tie between um, immigration, also flexibility of the labor market, and um, a generous welfare system. The generous welfare system has has the effect of creating resentments around who has access to the pie. I mean, in Norway, for example, everyone's fine with a very generous welfare system because everyone used to look like everyone else, and there was a sense of trust that was built into the system that you're sharing the, the pie with all these other people who are who you may not know, you almost certainly don't know, but they are true. They are utterly Norwegian, and you're comfortable with that. You have new immigrants coming in who are primarily Muslim, and then you say, "Well, um, the levels of trust aren't there. You 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 have questions about who these new immigrants are, and it makes you less willing to share these very generous welfare benefits. Um, and that undermines really what's at the core of the modern welfare state. That tension between immigration and the welfare state just simply isn't really um, present, certainly not in the same way in the U.S. Yeah, we just take it out on our black people on welfare. <laughs> That's how we take care of that because they look different and they're on the welfare. And this is what like led to Bill Clinton and or all that like welfare queen stuff that like shaped things. Yeah, but it's interesting. You sort of, you know, what you said, it, um, 
it's not tied to immigration specifically. Obviously, it's 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 different and it's extremely bad. And I th- luckily, we're moving away from that kind of rhetoric, at least on the left. It's interesting that it was Bill Clinton and his people who were indulging in this kind of um, narrative in the 90s. The 90s must have been a weird place, man. Yeah, man. I remember it. <laughs> Music was good, though. <laughs> I guess if like Nirvana is your touch point. Also, Nirvana I guess Stereolab. Stereolab was good. Come on. Your life was amazing. The nineties were great. The nineties were great. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) Musically. Yeah. Um, One thing I wanted to bring up with you and you, I think that you, you shared a tweet with me earlier and I guess it fits into this broader conversation about the European model. And I'm also reminded of um, a dinner gathering that we were part of last week where I think, um, I think I made it, someone made a joke, but then I said something like, um, well, it wasn't a joke because I think it was partly a serious conversation, but we were just reflecting on how bad COVID is in Europe because we had a friend who had recently come from some unnamed European country. I can't even remember where she came. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Germany. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's just really remarkable. But anyway, the, that, the, va- the failure of the vaccine rollout is the nail in the coffin to the European project as we know it, that the EU as an idea has been, in some sense, just just um, devastatingly undermined by recent events in a way that makes it difficult for, for me to imagine how it recovers. I mean, I've never, at least in my adult lifetime, I have never seen anything like this where you point to what is supposed to be a model of, as you said, cooperation and this multilateral ethic and this idea that politics isn't and shouldn't be zero sum. I mean, even the vaccine distribution regime is defiantly non-zero sum. Every country, no matter what, in the EU gets an allotment based on their share of the overall EU population. There is no allowance for countries to go their own way and to be innovative and to secure their own contracts. I know that some of that might be changing now, but the whole the whole framework is very, very constraining. And that has cost tens of thousands of lives already and will cost many more. And it's hard to look at that and to come out of it with anything but the conclusion Especially if you look at the success of the UK, obviously, the UK up until quite recently had a very high, it still does, but now it's sort of converging with um, with its European neighbors, its per capita death rate. But my guess is that when this is all done, I don't know when that will be in, in continental Europe, six months, eight, you know, who who knows how long it'll take. We will actually see an interesting divergence where the the, um, the UK started off as having the worst per capita death rate, uh, at least for through most of the early period of COVID. When this is all done, we might see countries like France actually eclipsing the UK. And, you know, when you see that, I wonder how people are going to take that and process that. But I think there's a lot of pride in the UK right now that they've been able to do so well so quickly um, it's been really remarkable, um, and like people are learning lessons. They're they're processing this, and I just I don't know what other conclusion you can reach. I know there are defenders of the European project who are finding ways to rationalize the failure, but I think that in trying to rationalize the failure, 
there's a kind of um, a patheticness to those efforts because it seems so contrary to reality as we see it. The, the world, anyone who's paying attention can see what a disaster this has been. And it just, it calls into question the whole idea that uh, you can have a supranational body that doesn't prioritize its own citizens because it doesn't have its own citizens because there aren't citizens in the traditional sense. I, I guess just, you know, as a sort of professional, semi-professional Europe watcher, um, you know, as someone who's, who's not just because my parents are over in Croatia, but I, you know, try and keep in touch with people over there. And, you know, whenever I'm on a call with anyone, I just sort of try and get, take a sense of the the temperature of of what it's all being experienced like over there. I'm still a little more careful than that to um to declare that the nails are being driven into the project. And it's hard to tell what it will look like. But I, I just to circle back, I mean the 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 part where I think, you know, the actual costs will be felt and felt in a way that will be hard to ignore is not so much in the the grotesque death tally, which I I, I think uh, to this day is 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 a it's a nasty metric that that you know basically media people have invented, and I I I I I don't think it's how it's most experienced. I mean, I think people experience the death of loved ones and they grieve, uh, as you've pointed out yourself. You know, of course, you know this this skews towards the the uh, the elderly, and so in fact. While no one likes to, uh, you know, lose relatives, parents, uncles, aunts, or anything like that, uh, if they're older, at least it's you know one can process that as as sort of this is what happens. You know, even if there's a, a sense of uh, that the state could have done more to save, there's there's a there's an acceptance and an understanding that there's a kind of natural order to these things. These things happen. It's tragic, but it happens. Um, I think the real scars will come, and again, I think this is. This is where this kind of uh, it's not callousness. It's it's not heartlessness. It's 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 this kind of American call it risk aversion. Uh, sorry, lack of risk aversion. This kind of uh, commitment to uh, I don't know, almost like a, a cowboy mentality of some sort that uh, is leading to you know the inability of America to do lockdowns, which I think will lead to America opening up perhaps before it's fully prudent, but as a result, it will open up sooner, is that like the United States is going to have such a head start on recovery and that that is something that, for example, will be very hard to ignore. I don't know where the UK ends up with this, largely because their economy, even after Brexit, is so tethered to the EU. And and if the EU is suffering, the UK is not going to be flourishing necessarily. Um, you know, disease counts be what they may. But but the the lag which was already so prominent um after 2008 which so many people had noticed you know even though by you know 2000 uh i don't know what 16 17 maybe it was even 2018 it was it took that long for the eu to recover fully but imagine now after all of this that like barely a recovery had taken place after 2008 and now again a protracted uh disaster and this this opening up this 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 chasm I think that's where people start questioning things uh, about the efficacy of the way things are set up. And it makes me think, you know, just hearing you lay that out, it makes me think that not not to overstate matters, but a period of, of mass discontent 
a period of not revolution, but of more and more citizens of various European countries taking to the streets, uprisings of various sorts. All of that may be in the cards if we kind of see if these trends continue and Europe isn't able to recover. It could be a very destabilizing couple decades going forward. And I think you're exactly right that when you think about Western Europe now, the last thing you think about is dynamism. The last thing you think about is innovation of people um, getting things done and being creative and the sense that the future is ahead of us. I think that oftentimes in, in Europe today, there's a sense that the past is behind, <laughs> that the future is past or the past is behind them or that whatever it might be, uh, <laughs> you get my point? Sort of, sort of. Try and say it again, though. Like they, that, that they're, they're dwelling on the past or? or... It just seems, it, it feels old and stale. People yeah. are old. Yeah. They're not able to reproduce uh, enough. Yeah. And they don't have enough immigration because they've been cracking down on immigration in many of these countries. Um, so we still have natural sources of growth. First of all, even though we have st- uh, starkly declining fertility rates, it still are higher than most of Western Europe, but we also have higher, um, at least it, it's possible that, um, we will have higher immigration flows, uh, for some time to come, especially compared to countries that have really, started to limit immigration, specifically Muslim immigration, and we'll have to wait and see how that works out. But there's just a sense of Europe's best days being behind it. I guess that's what I meant by the past is whatever. The past is behind Where I think that there's still a sense that's quite common among Americans that America is alive. Even the sense that I have in D.C. now, now that things are... I shouldn't say opening up because in some sense they were never closed. I think it's also a misnomer to say that America was ever locked down. I mean, one advantage we had is not is um isn't so much obviously we're we're doing we're reopening more quickly, but it's also true that we were never really closed. You may want we may consider perhaps the first 2 to 3 months of COVID in certain cities had not quite lockdowns, but something closer to that. But really, since then, nowhere in the U.S. has been properly locked down. And one might argue that no place has seen a European-style lockdown at any point over the past year. So in that sense, we're coming out of it um, not just uh, with our economy, quote-unquote, roaring, but we'll also come out of it with Americans not having had to experience what most Europeans have experienced thus far, which is long and grinding lockdowns, and they don't have a lot to show for it. Because you might say, well, long and grinding lockdowns are great if you can actually point to results and say um, the per capita death rates are significantly lower than other countries. But if we're looking at it comparatively with the U.S., you can't really make that argument anymore. Now, of course— the counter argument to that is that the death rates would be much worse if they hadn't locked down. But, you know, people are going to be comparing. They're going to be um, seeing how they stand compared to the rest of the world. And you and it's hard sometimes to compare compare your own country to its own counterfactual. What you're more likely to do is compare your own country to other observable experiences because you can actually measure that and there's not speculation, right? Yeah. Anyway, this is just all to say that 
I just get this sense of oldness and dread when I think about the coming period in Europe. And it just doesn't, it's hard to be, it's hard to see what the optimistic um, silver linings are. At least, look, anything is possible. And, you know, this is all speculative. But based on current trends, I think it's a fair argument to make. And that is not. And then what I was saying about um, how DC feels right now, there's a Americans, there's just a kind of um, a greater pride, I would say, among people on the left who previously just last year would not express any excitement about America or any pride. Obviously, it's still constrained, but there's a sense of Biden is bringing us back. America is back. We are reopening. This is going to be the roaring 20s. That is the sentiment of optimism and pride that I hear nonstop now, including from previously very America skeptic leftist types who didn't like saying very nice things about their own country. And countries are ultimately about what their citizens feel. Um, And right now it's really worlds apart. So I'll say, you know, just as a maybe a a final plug for Adam Tooze's latest essay in, in foreign policy. And maybe his argument is a little overdrawn. It's not maybe as overdrawn as mine. It's very different. But like it's it's he makes the case in uh juxtaposing Mario Draghi and Janet Yellen uh as, you know, two people with very similar career paths, with very similar commitments, uh professional intellectual commitments. He he sets up a stark sort of, I don't know what, um narrative, say about maybe the limits of their worldview and basically the world that that worldview has um, has built. The, the, where he ends up on, and maybe this is just uh, an important thing to keep in mind uh, if, you, if you're inclined to be more pessimistic, is that he says that, that though there's been divergence and though the United States has fared better since 2008 for all the reasons that we've outlined, that nevertheless, both in the United States – and in Europe, the rise of uh, political dissatisfaction, as you said, people heading to the streets and, you know, what you're predicting perhaps for Europe, it's actually uh, been equally distributed because, in fact, the economic world that the Yellens and the Draghis have conjured up throughout their careers is hitting some kind of limit. And that while, again, Draghi is going to be quite constrained in what he can do in Italy right now, Janet Yellen and, uh, you know, by extension, the Biden administration are making an enormous bet that uh, this super stimulus now, plus perhaps a longer term vision for whatever they can pass on the infrastructure stuff that's coming next, that this will basically transform the U.S. economy in a way that will assuage and or you know cure most of the ills that are that have basically yielded up economic populism, that have yielded up this like deep discontent with liberal democracy. And it's interesting. I mean, I think Tooze is a, a smart enough and a good enough writer to actually sound a, a skeptical and somewhat pessimistic note about that, that in fact, uh, this is just basically one last, perhaps uh, most powerful blast from the fire hose of things that have worked in the past before. But uh, if sort of the agglomerating doubts about the wisdom of the way things are organized right now, um, even the so-called radicalism of Joe Biden is not going to be able to 
basically fix it, that these are all sort of short-term solutions to deeper hmm. problems. Um, that goes that goes against this whole, you know, optimism about America and sort of what I'm trying to get at about like that there is this kind of special sauce. I mean, Tews is more negative about this idea that that basically, I don't know, not to, to I don't think he'd put it this way, but call it neoliberalism for short has failed and is failing and is perhaps not rescuable. Well, look, is it fair to describe part of the EU the the bargain at the heart of the EU project, some of it does relate to what we might call performance legitimacy, which we've talked about as it relates to authoritarian regimes. Since they don't give people freedom, they say, well, you don't get that and you can't choose your representatives, but at least we'll take care of you and improve your lives. The EU, in some sense, is undemocratic um, and somewhat unaccountable to voters, let's say, to be nice about it. Um, and But the premise there was that you would have this unaccountable supranational organization, but it would help make people's lives better. It would help, it would improve quality of life, it would deliver economic dividends, it would help on collective action dilemmas, um, so on and so forth. If the EU can't provide that end of the bargain, then it really, I think, underscores the performance legitimacy issue. What is the if the EU is not giving people representation? Its only other option is to give people performance. Yeah. Is that how would you? No, that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, it's just it's been it's been you know uh, the the smartest Europe watchers are always sort of impressed at how well it manages to pull off that trick of 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 performance nevertheless you know i've i've brought up luke von middlar before he writes about that at length as well and i mean talks about it in terms of you know greek tragedy and the importance of the chorus and the importance of the audience and in fact that it's all performative and this like performative legitimation is at the at the core of the construction of any democratic polity that gets us a little off the the beaten track I like but, that. but it's really interesting stuff um yeah you know i mean uh, it remains to be seen how how basically uh, the EU navigates this. I just think it's 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 dangerous to call it you know game set and match. I do think this is going to be pretty disruptive overall uh, for the easy ability to pull that trick off again. Um, but I, I you know I, I don't count don't count this out yet. I, I think there, there will be changes, but but perhaps not fully catastrophic ones. The only other thing I'd say about the unaccountability and the the uh, you know the uh, performance legitimation that gets at the heart again of the twos piece, which he 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 makes that point I think while not ex- as explicitly as you did right there, but very much about neoliberalism as a whole. Um, and it is true, you know, I mean, through the institution of the central bank and the independent central banker, uh, this is at the core of the ideology that, that goes back to, you know, uh, even, even before World War II, this idea that, in fact, uh, the economy is too important to leave to democracy to manage. Uh, that's yeah. that, that Swin, uh, what's the, the uh, Slobodian, Quinn Slobodian's uh, book, uh, what was it called? The Globalist or something like that. Actually, very much deals with that fact that this is core that it's it's you know must not be democratically managed and legitimated that is breaking down right uh that is that has been the the case especially on the left especially on the bernie left saying that that why should we have unaccountable bureaucrats managing the economy when these decisions that they make directly impact the well-being and and health of 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 individual citizens and their and their lives um and i don't know you know i mean it's a it's a it's a tough thing to answer 
Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, we have seen upticks. We we have seen some images of like mini uprisings where people take to the streets and there seems to be chaos. I'm surprised that there hasn't been more of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, throughout Europe, considering, but that there might be some lag time. So I think the crucial period will be the upcoming one. At, so, you know, right now, it also relates to this. So revolutions tend to happen in the in-between. They don't happen when there's extreme repression. They don't happen in full democracies. They happen when societies are transitioning. If we want to extend the metaphor and say that Europe in the coming period will be transitioning from a period where you had a, you had extreme lockdowns in many of these countries to what we hope will be full reopening, that is going to be quite the pendulum shift and one that's really unprecedented. And you don't know what that does to people's self-conception or how they respond to that. And we had some version of that on a, on a smaller level because we didn't have a full lockdown. But in the summer, we saw something perhaps comparable where the pent-up energies of the first very um, uncertain months of COVID, how that led to a summer of, of discontent, let's say. We could see something comparable in Europe, but times, times uh, two, three, or four. Anyway, Demir, you have a reading group to join in like two minutes. Um, And I think you guys will be reading um, a a speech from Cicero. That's kind of what we do in our fun evening reading groups. Thank God I've (laughs) already read it. I don't think we're doing a live reading in the reading group. (laughs) Live reading of Cicero. (laughs) And also just as like a little special thing for our dearest listeners who go, um, who join us until the very end, you might... Some of you might be excited to hear this because, as you know, as many of you know, my mom is a kind of recurring character in the podcast. She comes up because, you know, um, she's your mom. She's my mom. And um, she's actually right here. So I'm recording in my little um, my little office area. And then my mom is like right pretty much. I can't see her because I have a door closed, but she's basically right next to me as we speak. And then Demir will be coming over later to, to meet my mom for the first time. My mom was like, hey, you know, uh, it'd be cool to meet Demir. I've been hearing about him for such a long time. And I listen, and she's like, I listen to his voice pretty much every week. So my mom feels like she knows Demir, even though she hasn't met him. And now they'll meet for the first time. So that'll be cool. Super, super exciting. Really looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Demir, have fun at your reading group. All right, man. Talk soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye.